Yes, maybe seated. Good morning. It is wonderful to be here. How many country campers are out here? I'm just curious this morning. People that... Yeah, good, good for you. It was, uh, what was it, 30, what was the low, 32 degrees or something? Especially the Riveras, um, camping in a tent. Well done, well done. When, you're, when your home is just a few minutes away and you're willing to do that, that is, that's, that is uh, full commitment. That's great. Hey, they're having a great time. <clears throat> and last week, you know, Peter needed some water. <clears throat> Peter, are you here? I need a chorizo and egg burrito. The Guzman's Camps uh, RV's got that. If you could run and get that for me, that'd be great. No, that's not true. All right. Well, hey, we're in, the, we're in the downhill stretch of our series on epistles. And so we've been working through the Pauline epistles. And uh, hopefully, uh, some of you probably think ahead and you say, well, what do I need to read this week? If we did First Thessalonians last week, that would mean that this week would be Second Thessalonians. And so... Hopefully you had a look at that. Uh, if you did, and if you were here last week and you were paying attention, uh, there's a lot of ifs there. If you were here last weekend, if you were paying attention, you would have, uh, and if you've read Second Thessalonians, you would see that there are some very similar themes that run through Second uh, Thessalonians that were also present uh, in First Thessalonians. And so we're looking at a letter written by Paul, obviously, we're written, uh, that went to the Thessalonians, the church there in Thessalonica. Uh, in the early 50s, the, the Thessalonian letters are some of the earliest New Testament writing that we have. And uh, this letter is a follow-up uh, to the first letter that he had written not long after he wrote that first letter. And and. and Paul's addressing three big ideas. He's, he's addressing the idea of persevering and suffering. He's uh, addressing the idea of clarifying some confusion about the day of the Lord. And he's uh, addressing the, the continuing problem with people being idle as they wait for Christ's return. And so as we think about perseverance and suffering, as we think about the day of the Lord, as we think about this idea of idleness and the, the coming of the Lord, how can we... Uh, best respond uh, to those issues. And the Thessal- Thessalonians were having some issues related to these, and Paul's uh, continuing to uh, address them. So let's have a look at this. Uh, the, the first uh, big major theme is this idea of perseverance in suffering. It's chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. And uh, apparently what's gone on is he addressed this in the, in the first letter, but this suffering and this persecution has continued and, and maybe even increased. Uh, so we want to look at uh, what Paul had to say about that. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to find chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 3, and I'll be reading three, uh, verse 3 through verse 10. Let's have a look at it. He says, We ought also to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love of all of you, that all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to you and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. 
He will punish those who do not know God and who, and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. On the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. So perseverance in suffering, perseverance in, in, within uh, as we're being persecuted. Paul gives some reasoning, some reasons to the Thessalonians. Why? Why do we persevere? Why do we need to persevere? And maybe even how can we persevere? As this, as this suffering increases, as the persecution increases, how can we persevere under this? The thing I love about the Bible is as we look at the world around us, and Peter mentioned it in his prayer this morning, as we think about what's going on even within our own state this past week, the suffering that's happening within people's lives, whether it's loss of life, loss of home, uh, tragedy that happens, we don't have to look far to recognize that suffering and persecution is a reality. This is not just a first century uh, issue this is something that is a human issue it has been it will continue to be and so anything that paul can give us to hold on to how do i endure how do i maintain how do i persevere in the midst of suffering in the midst of midst of persecution help me paul help me understand so let me give you some things maybe that we can hold on to as we think about this within our own life. Because I want to make, often we will make a distinction between suffering. Suffering maybe is something that happens just randomly or I'm, uh, innocently that I'm suffering, uh, whether it's an illness or a, a tragedy that happens within my life and I'm suffering as a result of it. And then we, we might make a, dis, a distinction between that and persecution. Persecution's happening maybe because of my faith. Because of what I believe as a Christian, I'm enduring this persecution. It would be easy to, to distinguish between those two as different. I want to suggest that there's really no point in doing that. Because as a Christian, we should be distinct even in how we handle suffering, right? As a believer, I should be dealing with suffering in a, in a different way. As an innocent person suffering a, a tragedy or something happens in my life, ha, how I deal with it as a follower of Jesus should be distinct and different than maybe the rest of the world. So I, want to, I think it's okay for us to look at those together and how we respond to those things. So here's what Paul says. First of all, he says in chapter 1 that there's a reward. In, in verse 4, he says, uh, you will be an example. We are boasting about you, Thessalonians. The way that you are dealing with this persecution and this suffering, we are boasting about you among other churches in the area. We're using you as an example of great faith. He says that uh, our, our perseverance in persecution and suffering is a sign of our worthiness of the kingdom of God. It's, it's a sign that we belong. It, it helps to prove that we are part of the kingdom of God. As we deal with this persecution and as we stand up underneath it, as the suffering comes, it, it's, it's what proves the reality of what God's doing in our life. That we are worthy of the kingdom. Paul says that God will provide relief. To those who are troubled, relief will come. Some of you could testify to that very fact. He says that God will be glorified in your suffering. And ultimately, he says that we will have eternity with God. 
There's reward. There's, there's something to look forward to within our suffering, as, as bad as it is. Paul says there is, there is something that will benefit us. There's a reward for us. Secondly, he says there's judgment. Verse 6 and 7, 7 through 9, he says God is just. God's justice, as a part of that justice, he must respond to evil. He must deal with evil in the world. Paul says God will repay those who have caused trouble and suffering in the world. I noted something about that. Who, who will repay those that are responsible for suffering and persecution in the world? God will repay. Is it my responsibility? Do I need to feel responsible for making sure this person pays for their suffering that they've they've put onto other people. I, I don't think so. That's, that's, God's responsible for that. In his justice, he will deal with that. He says, God, uh, Paul says, God will punish those who have rebelled, who live in disobedience to him, who have chosen to go their own way. They'll be separated from God. This separation from God is really a continuance of the trajectory of the life that they've already decided. They, they, have rebelled against, they've decided God has no place in their life, this will continue to be the the case for them in eternity. It's a continuing result of the choice that they've made. And then lastly, I want to suggest that Paul believes that there's a purpose within this persecution and suffering. And so I want to take a moment and lift us out of Thessalonians and get a broader picture of what Paul and how Paul felt about suffering in its place in our life. And I think, I think this is terribly important that we understand this. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that I rejoice, that we rejoice in our suffering. Paul rejoiced in his suffering. He said about Jesus that Jesus chose the way of suffering. Jesus himself said that Nobody takes my life from, from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus chose the way of suffering. Paul saw suffering as a gift. In, in Philippians chapter 1, he saw it as a privilege to suffer on, the, on behalf of Christ. I recently finished reading a book by John Piper called Desiring God. And Piper in that book deals with the idea of suffering. And he says... Suffering as a gift is the right word. He says, because when writing to the Philippians, Paul incredibly calls suffering a gift, just like faith is a gift. He says, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Suffering was a gift. Piper goes on to say that this is not a normal human response. Humans tend to flee from suffering. We move to safer neighborhoods. We choose milder climates. We buy air conditioners. We take aspirin. We come out of the rain. We don't walk down dark streets. We purify our water. We do not normally choose a way of life that puts us in danger. But Paul says Jesus chose to suffer. Paul says, I I see suffering as a gift. It's my privilege to suffer on behalf of my Savior. So 
So why, why would this be such a great gift? So Paul says, or as, as we look at what Paul wrote in other places, we understand that God uses suffering to wean us from our own self-reliance and to cast ourselves onto Him completely. When I suffer, I recognize my own limitations and I realize I must, it's essential that I use the resource of God in my life. That it's God's universal purpose for all Christians to suffer. More contentment in God, less satisfaction in myself and in the world. That the deep things of life, the deep things of God, are discovered in suffering. Suffering refines and builds my faith, my maturity. Chuck Smith, in one of his sermons, Chuck is, uh, has gone to be with the Lord now, but he was the founder of Calvary Chapels. In one of his sermons, he said that uh, part of persecution and suffering in the life of the Christian, among other things, is to separate the sheep from the goats, demonstrating those with genuine faith. So I want to suggest that we need to rethink our view of suffering. That rather than doing all we can... Now, let me just be clear here. I I, I am not one that is praying for suffering in my own life. This is not something I'm asking God to bring into my life. What I am suggesting, though, is perhaps when, when it comes into our life, when circumstances in our life do not go the way in which we maybe had planned, and our life takes a a turn that we did not expect, that rather than losing it, losing our faith, that we embrace this suffering as as a privilege to suffer as our Savior did or to recognize what Jesus and what God has gone through on my behalf. It's our opportunity to identify in a deeper way with what Christ has done for me. I, I believe it's important that we rethink our approach to these things in our life. That does not, limit, it does not make it necessarily easier. It's certainly counterintuitive. As a human being, I, I, I'm with Piper that, you know, we, we, we seek comfort in our life almost to a fault sometimes. But when it comes, and it will come, I believe our, our approach as we follow Jesus together can say volumes to the world around us. And I think that's what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. So secondly, he's, he's talked about perseverance and suffering. Secondly, there's some clarification that needs to happen about this day of the Lord event. There was some confusion that had crept into the, the Thessalonian church about the near return of Jesus. Peter mentioned this last week, that they were expecting this. Paul, it's clear, Paul really expected this event, this second coming of Christ to happen while he was still alive. And now people are starting to die and it's been, you know, 20 years or so since Jesus ascended to heaven. They're waiting for this to happen and there's some confusion. So in in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul addresses this issue. I'm going to to begin at uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. He says this, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. 
Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or worship so that, uh, so that he sets himself up in God's temple pro- proclaiming himself to be God. That's verse 4. So they had gotten some bad information. The Thessalonians had, apparently. Now, now, in a contact or a communication supposedly from Paul. How does this happen? How does this happen? Let me just say, it was not uncommon in, in that first century time for letters and communication to be circulated with somebody else's name on it. I mean, let's be real. If you were receiving a letter from somebody important you would give it more credibility than if it just came from Mike the plumber or something like that. You, you, you would, no offense against plumbers, by the way. I just, I'm, so it was not unusual in that, in that time for letters to be circulated that would have one of the apostles' names on it or, and that's apparently what has happened here. That a letter or some kind of communication has come from Paul and these people are like, wow, the day of the Lord's already happened and we miss, how did we miss it? So that's caused some, some concern. Well, just to let you know that 2018 is no different, I want to relate to you what's happened at First Baptist in the last week. Just about all the staff received a, an important email from Pastor Peter. And the, the gist of this email was, contact me right away. I have something important for, to tell you. So, of course, Debbie in the office she was i'll tell you what happened later but anyway so she said i need to find out what's going on so we contact pastor peter and say what's up and he says um there's someone in the hospital um i'm in a pastoral meeting right now and this person in the hospital needs two 100 itunes cards right away i will pay you back okay so we do a little research and find out that this Peter, Pastor Peter Anderson is coming from a Gmail address, not his FB Hanford address. And so this is not our Pastor Peter. This is somebody else claiming to be Pastor Peter saying that uh, they need these iTunes cards for this person in the hospital, two $100 iTunes cards right away. And he can't do it himself because he's in a pastoral meeting. So you can see that um, it still happens. Some of you may have uh, fallen for some Nigerian prince that um, (laughs) has promised to pay you back if you could just send dollars their way. So it happens. These things happen. Debbie was not duped, by the way. She knew what was going on. But she carried on this conversation with the supposed Pastor Peter for a while uh, to find out what was going on. So these things happen. To lend credibility to the message, people are going to do whatever they can. And so this is supposedly what's going on here with Paul, that the the Thessalonians had received this information and now are concerned that somehow they've missed the day of the Lord. At the end of his letter, Paul makes it clear. At the end of chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, I write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. Paul makes it clear. Hey, this is me. This is legitimate. 
So what was the bad information that they got? The day of the Lord has already come. They've missed it. And and now there's a problem. They were not truly saved. They were not part of the kingdom of God. Whatever they might be thinking, Paul needs to clarify now why this was bad information. So Paul says, listen, the day of the Lord will not be here until two things have happened. So let's look at those two things. Because even for us, this is important for us to know. Paul says, two things have to happen. Now I want to keep, have us keep in mind that we are in 2 Thessalonians, we're getting a snapshot of these last things. So we cannot build our eschatology, our, our theology of end times, our belief on end times, just on 2 Thessalonians. This would be a problem. We recognize that there are other places in Scripture that speak to this. Revelation, for sure. The book of Daniel speaks uh, some about this. So we want to be careful that we look at the, the bigger arc of what Scripture tells us. But to the Thessalonians, this is what Paul's saying. Two things have to happen. And the reason I think this is important is because we tend to fear what we don't understand. Am I right? If we don't understand, it creates fear within us. And so all of a sudden, this idea of the day of the Lord and this coming of Christ and this judgment can create fear within us if we do not fully understand. And as a follower of Jesus, as people that are in a relationship with God, I, I truly believe we have nothing to fear. There's no, no need for me to fear what the future holds. But we tend to fear what we don't understand. And so it does remind us the importance of Pursuing a deeper understanding of these things to come. This, this is a particular subject that is uh, prone to misunderstanding. There are a lot of different views on this, and it's important for us to dig deeper and understand not just what man says, what does the Word of God say? It should drive us to God's Word. What does the Word of God tell me about the return of Christ? So as, as Paul talks to the, to the Thessalonians in this second letter... He says, first of all, that there will be a great rebellion. The word is apostasy. There will be this turning away from God to a degree that we have never seen before. It it, it points to a deliberate abandonment of a previous belief or a position, a turning away from God. And of course, people have been pointing to this all throughout history, right? I mean, from the first century all the way through to the 21st century, we're saying, yep, this is it. This is the rebellion, or this is it. People are, you know, so we are not the first to think that Jesus is going to return within our lifetime. People have thought that all along. There will be this great rebellion. So how will we know? How will we know when it is the great rebellion that Paul's referring to. Well, well, Paul makes it clear that there is, in conjunction with this rebellion, there, there is this powerful figure who embodies everything that is opposed to God. This man of lawlessness will be revealed. Revelation refers to him as the Antichrist. And so we look at this and we say, now, Jeff, this is where it gets freaky. This is where I start to fear, like, who is this guy? Or who was this guy? Because again, all the way through history, we've, pointed that we've, been pointing, we've been pointing to people, yep, this was him. This was him. And even today, if you go onto the internet and you look at conspiracy stuff, you can find a bunch of names. 
that this is the Antichrist. This is this man of lawlessness. So what does Paul say about this man of lawlessness? Let me, let me point out a few things. First of all, he says in chapter 2, he will be in opposition to all of the laws of God. He will oppose God in every way. It says he is doomed for destruction and that he will exalt himself to be worshipped as God. So let me give you a couple of thoughts related to this man of lawlessness that I think are helpful for us. It becomes clear in chapter 2 that this man is empowered by Satan, that he will be able to perform signs and wonders, miracles that will deceive many. We're told that he will deceive many. Paul says that uh, this man will, will come in accordance with the work of Satan. The Satan's strategy has always been and always will be to mimic what God has done. And so it's Satan's intention that this man of lawlessness, I believe, will be basically a parody of Jesus himself. That he will claim to be someone who is God, who is to be worshipped. But again, I don't believe that we need to be worried about this because we should have an understanding of how Jesus told us he would return. And what we see in this man of lawlessness does not coincide with what Scripture tells us about the return of Jesus. And so we need not fear. But the Bible is clear that people will be deceived. That those that, who have rejected this Prince of Peace, this, this Jesus Christ, the one that we believe in, those that have rejected him will fall for this man of lawlessness. And his empty promises and his uh, uh, mimicking power So it's important that we're on our guard, that we're alert, that we understand who Jesus is and how he will come. But here's what I find most encouraging about this whole thing. You could read through chapter 2, and it can be overwhelming and confusing. But I want to point you to verse 8 of chapter 2. Because Paul says about this man of lawlessness that he will be overthrown by Jesus. How will he be overthrown by Jesus? By what? The breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. Often, I, I don't know, we think that maybe this last battle, this epic battle between good and evil is going to be somehow the clash of two equals and it's going to be a raging battle. I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way. Paul says that this man of lawlessness, empowered by Satan, will be overthrown by the breath of his mouth. So this is not something for me to fear. This is not something for me to worry about. Can my God defeat this man of lawlessness? Is is this man of lawlessness empowered by Satan someone that can uh, destroy me as I follow Jesus? Absolutely not. Jesus will overthrow this person with the breath of of his mouth and at the splendor of his coming. Lastly, though, in chapter 2, I think we need to understand that there is a consequence for, for our sin, that there is a consequence for sin. Those that refuse to submit to God, uh, those that refuse to love the truth of God, will instead believe a lie. 
and they will be led down a path that will cause them to be in eternity away from God. Paul says it is a, a path to destruction. But again, in a very real sense, this eternity away from God is a continued path from their life here on earth. That they've chosen to live in their own wisdom. They've chosen to rebel against God and His truth. They've never had a place for God in their life in this life. And so that is the expectation in the life to come. It's a continued trajectory of their life here on earth. But there is a consequence for that rebellion. For those that refuse to submit to God, there are consequences. So lastly, in 2 Thessalonians, uh, Paul has a warning about the idol in this life. Chapter 3. Pastor Peter spoke about this quite a bit uh, last week, and so I would refer you back uh, to that, to his sermon from last week. If you didn't get a chance to hear it, maybe look or listen to it on the website. But I will say this. Let's look, first of all, at chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. Paul says this. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread that they eat. As for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This continued to be a problem. Even after Paul's addressing it to them in the first letter, there was people that for whatever reason, had decided that the Lord is coming, we're just going to sit and, and wait for His coming. But beyond that, they had uh, moved from just sitting and being idle. I love it. They had become busybodies. Now, I know that this doesn't apply to anyone here this morning, but I, I, I want to suggest that we be careful that we don't slip from busyness and and uh, maybe I should say maybe the better word would be purpose for the kingdom of God to slide into idleness and then to slide into being a busybody that all of a sudden uh, I'm more concerned about other people's business other things that are happening with them how they're living their life and missing what God wants to do within my own let me remind you well actually Paul says two things to them he says, avoid, avoid these people, avoid those that, who are idle, and then he says, get busy, settle down, and earn the bread that you eat. Let me remind you of a couple things that Peter said last week. He said this, regardless of who you are or what you do, the way we live like Christ is to do whatever it is we do to the best of our ability, as we love God and love others. We have to do our work as unto the Lord. Outsiders should respect our work regardless of their beliefs. Christ should be on display through the work, through our work, and through our excellence. And he went on to say that whatever it is you find yourself doing, whether it's momming, accounting, teaching, policing, whatever you do, do it to the best of your ability. He pointed out that it's a stewardship issue, that we don't, uh, that that God's given us tools, abilities, gifts, 
to use for his glory, to, to draw people to himself. So it drives me back to the idea of not just staying busy, not doing, 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 but it drives me back to the idea that life has purpose. It has meaning. That I don't just go through doing what I'm doing because I don't have any other choice or there's no meaning to it, but there is a purpose. That we're here to be the presence of Christ to a broken world. As people are suffering, as people are dying, as people are struggling, as people are looking for direction for their life, we can be the presence, we should be the presence of Jesus to these people. They should see direction, purpose in how we live that should draw them to himself. They should see as we deal with suffering, as we deal with struggles in our life, it is going to, and as we, as we in our life point our, are pointed to Jesus, it's going to draw people that direction. So the big idea this morning is this. First of all, last week, the big idea in First Thessalonians was following Jesus produces a holy way of life. In Second Thessalonians, I want to suggest that following Jesus gives us eternal perspective. It gives us strength to endure hardship and suffering. It gives us a foundation on which we can build our lives. We are, we're seeing a bigger picture of eternity because of what God has done in our own lives. This past week I read a devotion and I, th- I thought it spoke to this idea. I'm going to invite you as I read this, if you would, just, if you just close your eyes and uh, it'll be part of our prayer to finish up this morning. But listen to this. This is not... This is not from the Bible. This is just the devotion I read. But I want you to hear what it says. In life, our eyes can be focused on a whole lot of different things. We can learn to fix our eyes on the one who holds the universe in his hand, the only one we know who can help us, and acknowledge that it's only from him that we get what we need for life. It is only from him that we get our breath. It is only from him that we get our daily provision. It is only from him that we get the opportunity to live this day. It is a daily posture, not just when things are going wrong. Our eyes need to be fixed on Christ, knowing, that who, knowing who he is and knowing that he is the only thing that we need. So I'd ask you this question, where is your hope today? And on what are you building your life? As you think about even these three ideas from 2 Thessalonians, I I wonder if there's someone here today that maybe when you start thinking about how the world is falling apart around us many times, or at least it appears that way, if if it draws you to great fear. And maybe that fear becomes, or maybe that fear comes from the fact that you deep, deep down, recognize that, that you don't know God, that you are away from Him. The Bible tells us that if we would simply, genuinely acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, that He has come to save us from our own Sin, our own rebellion, our own um, tendency to go our own way. That we put our faith and trust in Him. 
we will be saved. Or secondly, you may be one that uh, you've got your eyes focused. You're, you're a believer, but your eyes are just focused on everything other than, than Jesus himself. And so I would encourage us as we move through each day that our focus would not be on what we see happening around us, but on our Savior, the one who gives us life and breath and hope for the day. Let me pray for us. God, we are... We confess that um, we have a tendency to go our own way, uh, that as we think about uh, suffering, as we think about the circumstances of our life, that often we're at a, at a loss for how best to respond because it, it just seems unfair. It seems like it should not be this way. But God, we, we are grateful that even in the midst of our questioning and our hurting and our suffering, that you desire to use that in our life. As we think about the day that we anticipate with hope, the day of the return of our Savior, that God, that we would not be deceived, that we would not fall victim to anything that would draw us away from you, but that our eyes would be fixed on you. And lastly, God, if, if there, if any way we are finding ourselves dealing with the problem of idleness, that we need to make our faith more real in our life, that you would provide us the direction provide us the opportunity to make our faith very real to those around us. So we thank you for your truth today, for what it says to us. Would, would we leave with a renewed desire to be used by you in, those, uh, in the lives of those around us? Thank you, God, for who you are, for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, this morning as you go, um, Paul and Donna Klein uh, are going to be uh, here in the back at the back table uh, if you are just uh, in need of uh, prayer or if you've got questions just related to your own relationship with God, they would love to talk with you about that. They will be available back there at those, at those tables. Uh, and then as is usual, uh, Peter will be up front. I'll be up front as well. We would love to, to answer any of those questions and pray as you have a need. So thanks for being here this morning. We will see you next week. Yeah.